From across the globe, from the center of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. I'm going to talk today about uh, laser communications in air and space and remote locations, uh, but today is just the start of uh, a journey we're going to have over the next 5, 10, 15 years. Uh, in my opinion, and it's my humble opinion, uh, we are just starting. We're at the ARPANET stage for laser communications in space. So when I started in telecommunications 30 years ago, uh, for the younger people in the audience, this was the days before the internet. And before the internet, we had ARPANET, which was peer-to-peer. And uh, we had lots of fun with peer-to-peer because everybody was a system administrator and uh, if you, you didn't have domain name servers. So uh, if you got your uh, IP address wrong, uh, as I did one day, you end up with a welcome screen popping up uh, from NASA. We'll not talk about that because this, this conversation has been recorded, but if you want to ask the rest of that story, I, I'm available after this meeting for a chat. Um, but anyway, to, uh, to move on. So in those days, we had really, really low data rates, and uh, we didn't quite know what was go- were going to be the killer applications and services uh, for this burgeoning new network of computers, uh, which... Uh, if you apply the last 20, 30 years, I think the driving force for the last 20, 30 years is not Moore's law, which is the uh, states that a processing power of a CPU or a computer doubles roughly over 18 months. I actually think the thing that's driving what's going on right now is a thing called Metcalfe's law, which is the usefulness of a network is proportional to the square of the number of nodes. So as n goes up, the number of connections goes up by n squared. Now, the IEEE Communication Society did some work on this recently and said it's not n squared, it's n log n. But for the mathematicians amongst you, n log n is as near as you can have it to n squared. So as the number of nodes goes up, the usefulness goes up. And you'll find that to be very interesting towards the end when you ask yourself from Martin's presentation, how many nodes are connected by laser communications, either air and space today? And there are not many. They probably put them on one hand, let alone uh, two hands. So... Uh, without further ado, I'll get moving, uh, and I've, as we go along our little journey, I love it when the, I press the button and nothing happens, uh, there's a monstrously long abstract which I won't go through. What I'll do quickly is just recap a couple of things. So optical communications have been, ha, has been around since the Romans, and I saw a wonderful presentation from somebody recently where they showed how the Romans would talk between their different hill camps using... Uh, five torches on a sort of a thing that could do that. You'd have three, you'd have two. They had different codes for different instructions, and it was a great demonstration of how optical communications is at least 2,000 years old. So I'm not offering anything radically new. What we're offering is something a little bit faster than bits per minute. Uh, my colleagues in the European Space Agency and uh, what was Astrium at the time they developed a uh, laser communication system called Silex, which sat on a uh, telecommunications satellite called Artemis. I think Artemis is still operational today. It's towards the end of, very much towards the end of its life. The Silex terminal used the best at the time, uh, which was an aluminium gallium arsenide Fabry-Perot laser. Uh, it's 800 and something nanometers. 
uh, and communicated to a low Earth orbiting satellite using a terminal called Ophelia, if I remember rightly. And uh, the guy who developed this system, a, a colleague of mine, a very good friend of mine in Toulouse called Bernard Laurent, he uh, talked about being a brave guy. He developed an airborne terminal, stuck it through the window of business jet, and uh, did a demonstration at Le Bourget in 2006 and demonstrated live video uh, at 50 megabits per second. And the story goes, if, I don't know whether it's true, I think he's just making this up, that it hadn't been working just before that, and this was the first time it worked in front of everybody. I don't think anybody is quite a risk taker like that. I'm sure he tested it and got it working before then. And more recently, you've seen all sorts of uh, results. Uh, this is one from NASA, the Laddie Lunar Explorer, uh, back end of 2013. Uh, I've heard a figure from, uh, from this orbit around the moon back to the Earth that uh, the, I've heard a data rate quoted as 622 megabits per second. I don't know whether that's the gross data rate or the user data rate. All that I do know, and the terminal on the left is the laser comms research demonstrator terminal from MIT Lincoln Labs, if I remember rightly. Um, and, uh, but all I do know is that to, con to detect this signal on the ground, they used some huge telescope on the top of Maui, I think, some 10-meter telescope with a cryogenically cooled nanowire receiver. So they were doing some, but it's a heck of a long way to the moon. So this was an experiment to demonstrate laser comms to deep space. Now we'll talk about why you would want to do that versus RF comms uh, later on, because I believe that that is absolutely the right thing to do. Um, now, unfortunately, I walk around a bit while I'm presenting. There's a good reason for that. I've got a bad back, and it keeps me mobile. And unfortunately, I'm a bit of a fidget when it comes to walking around. So, Alex, do you want to fire up the first movie to just give a, a feel for what's going on right now? So... I'll talk us through this initially. So this is an example of what you can do with laser communications. What we have is a laser link from a low Earth orbiting satellite up to a geostationary, and then a KA link down to ground. Why would we want to do this? This is a large multispectral imaging satellite. It could be Pleiades, or it could be Digital Globe World View 3. These are multispectral imaging satellites, some of them down to a meter resolution, less if you uh, talk to the guys who are military and they produce huge amounts of data because they've got a very wide swath and they uh, produce a lot of data as they scan over the Earth. This is a radar satellite. This one is uh, TerraSAR-X, made by my colleagues in Friedrichshafen. Um, it has interferometric SAR and two of them fly together to produce a stereo image uh, with Tandem X. Again, these sorts of things are superb at producing huge quantities of data. So one of the reasons why large satellites could start to use laser links is because of the data quantities. The third satellite is a uh, low Earth orbiting weather satellite. Um, the experts amongst you will notice a deliberate mistake. The solar ray is pointing upwards rather than sideways. Um, don't know what happened there. And in this case, uh, you have uh, lower resolution instruments, but you have more instruments. You probably have 10 weather instruments in different wave bands uh, and all sorts of other sensors on board to, uh, to help to do weather prediction. 
So in terms of applications, we can get the data off very quickly. In fact, the data goes up to the geo and down to ground within 300 milliseconds. So with a radar satellite, you could image a floodplain, uh, for instance, in Bangladesh or the, when the levees broke in uh, New Orleans, get the data up quickly and down to the ground for processing and use it for mapping to help relief organizations. Um, other applications could be uh, used for military and dual use in security situations where people need to know uh, what's going on from above uh, in order to help and coordinate and decide what is, is to be done. And of course we live in a world of constant change where there are disasters on a maritime and airborne basis. Thankfully very, very rarely, but when they happen we need to know what's happened, how we can prevent them and uh, what we can do next with that data. So this system, because it's geostationary, allows us to look uh, the coverage instead of uh, normally low Earth orbiting satellites are polar sun synchronous. So they go this way. So they're always looking towards the sun over there and the Earth rotates underneath them. So the only common denominator to, to download the data every single orbit is either the North Pole or the South Pole. Uh, the North Pole, uh, they typically use a, 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 an archipelago called Svalbard. I won't call it an island because that's very controversial. Archipelago called Svalbard um, to download the data. There's a fiber from Svalbard into Central Europe, and the data can be processed in Central Europe very quickly. The South Pole isn't that simple, uh, as you all know from all these wonderful um, uh, shows, the BBC Blue Planet and, and Frozen Planet, etc. The South Pole is a, is, a, is a different ball game when it comes to cold and inaccessible. Uh, there are ground stations in the South Pole, but getting the data back from the South Pole is a lot more difficult. And uh, I think the Norwegians are going to launch a satellite called Thor 7 very soon to have a, uh, a microwave link uh, from the South Pole up to Thor 7 and down into Europe. So that would help matters a lot in the foreseeable future. And other people have got connections. But the data rates are measured in tens, hundreds of megabits, not gigabits. So this is a little bit of a history of how we got around to do laser communications. So when I started... Uh, a project came across my table about six years ago. It was an, an announcement, announcement of opportunity from the European Space Agency. And uh, three colleagues of mine, uh, two, uh, two men and a lady, uh, myself, we put together a response and then the whole thing grew from there. Now, this wasn't completely out of the blue. What happened was DLR uh, and the German government had sponsored the development of a laser communication terminal since 1983. And the first one was launched on uh, a low Earth orbiting satellite called Terrasar X. You saw it earlier. And another one was placed on a German missile, uh, American missile defense satellite called M Fire. And the two laser terminals communicate with each other regularly when they fly past each other. And for those that are not uh, acquainted with this, low Earth orbiting satellites typically fly about eight kilometers per second which when it's translated into a ground uh, velocity, it's about 22 times the speed of sound. So you've got two satellites going in opposite directions at 22 times the speed of sound. Uh, these lasers uh, try and lock onto each satellite uh, and then uh, acquire, do phase and frequency lock and then communicate between each other. And these things typically lock within 10 to 20 seconds. As soon as they come over the horizon, you'll see the, uh, the thing lock and then the, the bit error rate drop to 10 to the minus 11 for some 10 minutes or more till they disappear over the horizon and they're blocked by the upper atmosphere. They also, uh, if you look at the bottom left-hand corner, I've got a laser pointer, I might as well use it. Um, 
the bottom left-hand corner, they also, whenever they fly over Tenerife, where there's an optical ground station, they can do uh, data links down to the optical ground station, and we get an awful lot of useful information about the quality of the data link depend depending upon the elevation angle. So we're building a channel model for the, uh, the atmospheric uh, communications uh, via laser communications from ground up to low Earth orbiting satellites. Now these two uh, lasers work uh, with a user data rate of uh, over five gigabits per second because they're only going some 10 uh, odd co uh, thousand kilometers between the two satellites. We signed a contract in 2011 and uh, I will talk about this in a minute. The, the first LEO to GEO laser link was demonstrated uh, back end of last year in November on board the LEO satellite was the ESA Sentinel-1A satellite and the uh, GEO satellite was a technology demonstrator payload on board Inmarsat's AlphaSat uh, spacecraft. And that uh, was a very, very useful demonstration of LEO to GEO. Now, LEO to GEO is a lot more difficult. If you look at the distances, it's something like 40,000 kilometers out to geostationary. But actually, in terms of acquisition, it's not as difficult as doing two satellites moving in opposite directions, each one in moving at uh, 22 times the speed of sound. A geostationary satellite goes around the Earth, uh, locked onto the Earth's rotation, and, and, and typically travels around about three kilometers per second. So locking onto something at three kilometers per second from something at eight kilometers per second is, is not as difficult. And because of that, we, we can make the lock within 50 to 60 seconds, allowing for all the uncertainties. Unfortunately, geostationary satellites are not as easy to locate as low Earth orbiting satellites who can use the local GPS signal to, to lock them uh, to within feet. So uh, this is the first proof of concept of LEO Geo links at uh, gigabits per second. Uh, and we intend to launch our first commercial satellite to, to offer the service for laser communications. Uh, the satellite has already been completed. It's, it's gone through TVAC in Toulouse, and it's waiting to be stuck on top of a proton rocket, which was due to launch in March, but because of the proton manifest, is slightly behind schedule, but it's moving forward again. It should be around about the middle of the year, and I think Stephen will uh, we'll, uh, give you an update on that later. So that commercial satellites, we're a hosted payload on board a, a standard commercial satellite. In this case, it's Utilsat 9B, and it's a standard Astrium Eurostar 3000 SX spacecraft. The service module's made in Stevenage. The communications payload is made in Portsmouth. The solar rays come from uh, my colleagues in Otterbrunn, and they get, all get shipped to Toulouse. They do some testing. Uh, they stick software on it, and they stick a great big French flag in front of it. But two-thirds of it's British, and one-third of it is German. This is European collaboration at its best. <laughs> and then we hope to have service uh, with, as an anchor customer, both the ESA Sentinel-1A and 1B satellites. These are C-band SAR satellites, and their follow-up uh, Sentinel-2A and 2B, which are multispectral imaging satellites. <clears throat> Not long afterwards, sometime the year afterwards, we hope to launch EDRSC, which will give us redundancy in space. This is the opposite way around. This time we are, a dead, we are the main mission on a small geosatellite from our competitors OHB, uh, and that should be launched uh, sometime next year. And there are also hosted payloads from, I think, Avanti Hylas 3 is on there as well. 
so there's, uh, in this case, we're the prime mission, and there's hosted payloads on there. And in the other case, we're just a normal commercial uh, massive telecom satellite where we're just a small hosted payload. So we've covered both ways of doing things. We also have, on the system, we have a KA inter-satellite link. Uh, in case, we, when we first did this, I, I looked into the size of the laser communication terminal. So the picture up the top left-hand side, just to give you a sense of scale, it's about a half meter by a half meter by 0.8 of a meter. So it's the size of a small fridge. Now, some of my colleagues' satellites from SSTL and there are other small satellite manufacturers, their whole satellite is the size of that. So uh, at the time I said, well, we've got to serve the small satellites because I believe uh, that uh, we need small satellites with lots of them in a constellation for frequent revisit to then queue in the big satellites to when you found an anomaly so you can get a really good high resolution picture. So the two complement each other. So I wanted to serve the low Earth orbiting satellite, small satellite community. And at that time, I thought it'd be much easier to stick a small KA transmitter on there and have a KA inter-satellite link on the geo end, and then that can then go through the same feeder link in KAESS band. So we have a small uh, KA inter-satellite link, which is capable of anything for up to 300 megabits per second, depending on the power from the transmitting end. So, uh, and that, oh, I'm the one person who should have switched off his phone. I apologize for that. Let me just switch it into airline mode or whatever it is. There we go. Right. So, um, and uh, what we're planning to do is put a KA terminal on the outside of the International Space Station Columbus module in the near future in order to give some connectivity to that uh, mission. Because right now, the, 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 the International Space Station is completely overloaded in terms of requirements against a very uh, limited uh, TDRS link via NASA. And then in the future, there are other possible missions that can use this and, and further satellites to provide the service. Now, this is uh, the first LEO-GEO laser link, which was made in November with the uh, AlphaSat satellite. It's a picture of Berlin, and it was done in real time uh, back end of November. Uh, it was the very first near real-time LEO-GEO link. Uh, it was 1064 nanometers. Now, the laser system for the optical guys uh, who are interested is 1064 nanometers coherent homodyne BPSK. Now, the, the advantage of a coherent system is that um, if you look at the geometry of the orbits, uh, certainly round about the equinoxes, there's a possibility your LEO satellite is coming over and the sun can be behind you in direct line of sight. So you need to be able to still offer a service both acquiring the satellite and then doing communications. And the Homodyne BPSK system allows you to be able to do, or coherent detection allows you to do communications, both acquisition and communications, while you've still got the sun coming straight down your telescope. So there's quite a bit of thermal management goes on to make sure that that doesn't blow up the receiver. Uh, the, the actual feeder link was a narrow spot beam uh, which is pointing at a dish in Oberpfaffenhofen, which is uh, west of Munich, so it's sort of west-southwest of Munich, about 30 kilometers, and it's a 14-meter dish, and it's in the KAESS band. Um, now, when I heard this, I had to go and see this dish because they said to me, this is a 14-meter KA band dish on the top of a four-story building. Now, anybody who's done satellite dishes knows a bit about wind shear, 
I thought, this is not going to stay on the top of this building. So I actually got, went to visit this, and I've got a picture of me on the top. And uh, it, uh, yes, it will stay on the top of the building because there's 10 tons of steel there to make sure it'll take, stay on the top of the building. But whether the building will still have the top floor is a different debate when the wind blows down over Oberpfaffenhofen after a while. So the user data rate, in this case from Sentinel, was 600 megabits per second, purely limited by the uh, mass memory system on the Sentinel-1A satellite. There's two modes of the laser. It can either offer a user data rate of 600 megabits per second or a user data rate of 1,800 megabits per second. In other words, 1.8 gigabits per second. Those two user data rates sit on top of a gross data rate of 2.8 gigabits per second. So the system is communicating at 2.8 gigabits per second. Also in the recent past, We've seen laser links from aircraft to ground. This is a, an example of something done by Violite with my colleagues, Airbus Defence and Space Military Aircraft in Manching, uh, who have an exper experimental tornado and a pod underneath. And this is a laser link to an optical ground station developed by DLR. Um, this was done uh, about six to nine months ago. Uh, at 1.25 gigabits per second, it's a 1550 nanometer conventional telecommunications on-off key modulation scheme like you would see in the, in the backbone of the internet. Uh, and it's designed to be uh, CWDM, Coarse Wavelength Division Multiple Access. Uh, so you could have multiple wavelengths up to 10 gigabits, they think, per wavelength uh, times, uh, or, uh, at times four wavelengths as an initial design, but I think it can go further in the future. Uh, the, the, this is not to be underestimated. This tornado is, was flying uh, both uh, radially in towards the optical ground station uh, around the circumference and tangentially, somewhere between uh, 5 to uh, 40 kilometers out and 1 to 3 kilometers in altitude at Mach 0.7. And for all the time it was flying, they had a communications link at 1.25 gigabits per second for 40% of the time which is pretty impressive when you think about how much of the time those wings must be obscuring the laser and the time it's turning around. So it's a pretty good uh, demonstration of how to do laser communications to an optical ground station uh, on the ground. So what I'll talk about briefly is uh, move us on a little bit from the big satellite story to the future and what are the trends. So I, I personally believe, and it's, it, it, you can you read in the press, uh, we were, we're going to have more of the medium-sized satellites and many, many more of the small and tiny satellites. Now, uh, there are all sorts of debates going on about the, the thousands of, of tiny satellites that are being proposed, that have often been referred to as debris. But I think that's, uh, that is not looking at the whole picture. I think we need a complete range of different sizes of satellites. And you can see I'm not a ventriloquist. I can't t t talk and drink at the same time. So what I'm going to do is, is show you how we can do the next step. So we have a laser terminal today, which is flight proven on both LEO and GEO. And what's the next step to see if we can get it on the medium size and even small satellites? Um, and what we did was, was take the basic laser communication terminal here. And what I found out while working with my colleagues in SSTL was that the pointing accuracy of the satellites, the small satellites tend to be a complete solid instrument and they move the satellite around to point at the Earth, like a flying telescope. Uh, they have very good uh, star trackers and, and AOCS, uh, attitude orbital correction systems, on these satellites. And they actually have better pointing accuracy of the satellite than we have of our course pointer 
on the top here. This is an elevation and an azimuth course pointer. All the interesting stuff is done. This is a telescope which takes it from 135 millimeter aperture down to about 12 and a half millimeters aperture. Then it goes into a splitter system uh, to, uh, to split the transmit from the receive signal and has a fine pointer and a pointer head mechanism to be able to then uh, lock the signal on. So actually, the coarse pointer just gets you within 2,000 microradians and all the interesting acquisition lock and pointer head is done by these high-speed high mirrors on the side here. Now, this can be integrated today on small satellites, and in the future, we will be redesigning this system to look a bit more like a next-generation laser communication terminal with separate modular electronics and, and baseband optics. And in the future, not very far in the future, I have got this vision whereby we hijack the instrument itself. Why have two telescopes when you only need one? And you can have a sub-aperture of that, uh, that telescope. Uh, and we will talk about that in the near future. So for me, we're, we're in terms of laser communication terms, we're, I don't even think we're at the mobile phone level. We're, but do you remember when we used to have mobile phones that were suitcases? I think today, our laser terminal, this is why I say we're, all, we're just past the ARPANET into the early days of the internet phase, uh, because this is the equivalent of that. It's an optical bench in space and is a very interesting piece of kit, but in terms of high-volume manufacture, there are all sorts of challenges associated with it. We all know all about imaging turrets, telescopes, gimbaled instruments. The next generation of laser terminal will be very interesting to see how that can get smaller, lighter, and lower power. And then eventually we'll do this. So this today is, this is a laser terminal. In my, if you look in the back end of a proper blade server or a decent router, Cisco routers or any other make of router, you will see instead of an RJ45 connector, you can plug in one of these things. This is a small form factor transponder. They make them in millions today. There's two fiber inputs. One is transmit, one is receive. This is a gigabit or more small form factor transceiver. My vision of the future is that this is what you put into a satellite and then you use some expansion optics and then you use the main instrument telescope. Now, we're some way away from doing that today because this won't survive in space. It won't survive the radiation. It probably won't survive the thermals, but there's lots we can do to make that work in the near future. If you apply the SSTL principles, uh, which is how they stuck a, a, an iPhone in space, I think they, they, they decided to solve the radiation problem by wrapping it in lead foil. It's a novel idea. And then keeping it at the standard temperature of room temperature. Uh, it won't last very long, but if it doesn't last very long, it's only 300 euros. You can have five or six of them up there. So this is what the TLA kit will look like, something like 40 kilograms. This is a very interesting figure. So when it's doing acqu uh, acquisition, it has a peak power of 165 watts, complete consumed power. The actual uh, communications power is about 120 watts. So if you look for during the orbital uh, system, in, in allowing for the time we need to keep it warm, we can bring down the average power to the satellite of something like 20 or 30 watts, which is very usable in a small 150-kilogram satellite. This is what it would look like when you take the course pointer off. You have your basic TLA uh, and optics. Then you have some baseband electronics and some baseband optics. You have a data formatter, but if you've got the next generation of mass memory formatting unit, that's probably not required. You've got some optical fiber, and then you've got a heat transfer system. So the optical fiber and the electrical connections connect the baseband electronics and optics to the what is a laser head, 
and you've got a little radiator you've got to have nearby. We may find we don't need the radiator in the near future using uh, next generation cooling. And the, the modular software is very straightforward. Um, so this is, let's look at how we would embark that on an SSTL or a small satellite. This is an SSTL 300 made by my colleagues in Guildford today. And this is the TLA kit poking out of the side through the solar array. And there's a good reason for that. You can see they looked at a number of different options. One was to point out the top. Another one was to point out the side. And this is a picture of it on its side. There's the optical head. And here's the baseband electronics and optics on the other side. So it counterbalances. So it produces a nice balanced structure, uh, which you could embark fairly late in the program. Why would we do this? So you can imagine you've got your geostationary satellite over there, which seems to have lost its solar panels because of the colors. Don't know why, but hopefully they're there. Otherwise, it won't be surviving for very long. Here's the sun on the equatorial plane. As a satellite comes out of eclipse, the satellite can turn. It will naturally turn its solar rays towards what will be the sun on the equatorial plane. And if we fire through the solar rays, we only have to move a small distance across to the geostationary satellite. So we're trying to minimize the amount of uh, orbital correction required in, to, in order to do the communication link. So uh, we can do a quick tasking uh, forward transmission signal to say your new uh, imaging uh, target is, uh, is a um, uh, world event in Barcelona or whatever, and then as it flies over here, it's got the latest information where to take a picture of, the, of something it needs to take. And then immediately afterwards, it will point back again and relay the data back to the geostationary satellite, and it can be processed on the ground within 300 milliseconds. So you can see we've got a very, very wide uh, coverage to geostationary over the poles, and it works similarly around the side of the Earth, you get a very wide coverage area from one geostationary satellite, assuming the LEO satellite is, is more than 100 kilometers above the Earth. In this case, I've done an example coverage. The pink is the coverage of a 500-kilometer high, which is exactly what TerraSAR-X radar satellites do. Optical satellites tend to fly a little bit higher at 700 kilometers. And this is the coverage of what would be EDRS-A, uh, Utilsat-9B, uh, when it's launched in the middle of uh, this year. So you can see that one satellite alone, one geostationary satellite, covers pretty well all of the useful parts of the Earth right now. And we'll talk about the airborne coverage later on. So this is the thing broken down into a concept of use. So here's a satellite coming over the North Pole. It needs to charge its battery, so it points its body-mounted solar panels. So the other thing that's very interesting about small satellites is they typically have body-mounted solar panels, so they don't have much solar array area. Therefore, they are severely power-limited. And one of the great things about laser communications, as opposed to RF communications, is it's something like 10 to 15 times more power efficient. And the reason is quite simple. The wavelength of light is so much shorter. Therefore, for a small aperture antenna, it's got a lot more gain. And the link budgets are helped by that. And because the link budgets are helped, you don't have to use as much transmit power to get the same data rate. So here it is coming over the North Pole. It, it's doing its first acquisition in, over England. It can then relay the data back by a small rotation of the satellite from there across to here and point the laser uh, at the geostationary to within 2,000 microradians. Then the rest is done. The, the satellite uh, already knows how to do that because it can point 
to something like 250 microradian accuracy towards the Earth. So it's already got better pointing accuracy by nearly a factor of 10 than is required to do the basic coarse pointing here. And then the fine pointing system will lock on uh, coarse and fine will do it within a, uh, within a minute. You can take more images uh, and you can do more relay. Now, one other thing you could do is you could have this here as a, as a forward direction where you're tasking and then you're literally just before you come into the imaging area and then you image with the very last minute the latest uh, place you want to take pictures of and you can relay the data back uh, shortly afterwards. Now, it doesn't have to be an imaging satellite. It could be a communications uh, satellite could be an Internet of Things type satellite that picks up data off the ground, these little unattended sensors, uh, pick up the latest status of those and log that data up and then relay them back. Um, you'd need an awful lot of sensors, uh, these tiny little sensors, to warrant a, a, data, a backhaul data link of 1.8 gigabits per second, but there are a lot of these sensors planned in the foreseeable future. Right, let's see how this looks a little bit more... Uh, interactively. So if I get this right, I need to put my glasses on. Um, have, I got the right, have I got the right movie? Just one second. This is the movie. And I need to start it in the right place. And it was 4.30. So I apologize for this. We haven't had a chance to edit this down because this was done very, very recently. And there's one or two things that I'm not allowed to show yet. Um, so this is showing you how this would look in the foreseeable future. Here's the satellite. It's turned towards the geostationary satellite. And it picks up the geostationary satellite within 60 seconds. And there's the geostationary laser uh, course pointing in the opposite direction. And then very shortly afterwards, you've got this, this communications link. It's a big... European-wide KESS, so this is a big wide beam over the whole of Europe, and if you've got a dish like this, you can pick up the data. So, let's stop it for now, if I can find my mouse. Let's take that out, oops. Microsoft, and it's particularly when it's me that's operating it. So have we got that back? Good. So here's embarkation example on other satellites. So very kindly, the UK Space Agency sponsored a very low-cost SAR satellite called Nova SAR uh, recently. Uh, this is built by my colleagues in uh, SSTL with a payload, a SARS payload from uh, our Portsmouth uh, payloads group. And you can see top right hand, uh, what the satellite looks like. It hasn't been launched yet. It's been completed. It's waiting to be launched. There's some spare space at the end here, and I've looked at putting this TLA kit on the end there with the electronics counterweighted at the other side of the satellite so that it's perfectly balanced. That's uh, more or less a scale drawing. This is an example of a future radar satellite, a little bit like Sentinel-1A, but a smaller version of it. And you can see it's got fold-out um, SAR uh, arrays here, it's got its TLA kit pointing out, again, perpendicular to the solar rays at the back, and the electronics, baseband electronics and optics counterbalancing uh, at the other side of the spacecraft. And you could do the same for next-generation optical satellites, uh, not just ones made by us, but ones made by our colleagues and competitors. Uh, this is really pushing it to the limit. 
So this is the scale of a TLA kit inserted into an SSTL 150. There isn't a great deal of space left, but there is space left for the main payload. And um, so this is the AOCS half of the system. This is where the actual payload would go itself. So there is some space left, and if it's the right payload, it can fit in there and work quite well. So that's showing you what the near future could, uh, uh, could look like if we had a tech demo sat to try this out, and I'd like to get to that in the near future because there's some very interesting payloads being developed by other people who uh, increasingly we need more and more data back. The advantage of this, any laser communication system which goes via geo, is that once the system is up, you have what I would call a virtual ground segment. So if you're buying a new small satellite, you, one of your biggest costs is installing a ground segment. Well, this is your ground segment. This is your backbone connection. It's like having an RJ45 connector plugged into your satellite. I'll move on a little bit quicker, and I'll leave this for now and come back to it later. So let's talk about airborne, because um, for me, this is an even shorter-term opportunity for laser communications. Um, you can, a number of people have talked about laser communications. This is an example uh, of the way one place you could stick a laser terminal on an aircraft. It could be underneath, just underneath the front or on the very front of the, uh, the aircraft. And if it's going down, if it's going, wants to communicate towards the ground, as we showed with the tornado demonstrator, we could point a laser towards the ground and uh, communicate at gigabits per second that way. It could even point towards another aircraft or uh, using the EDRS or other data relay systems in the future, it could, it could do uh, laser links at gigabits, uh, up to two gigabits per second per wavelength uh, beyond line of sight using a geostationary satellite. So this is one possibility for the future. There are lots of debates about wave bands. Let me put it very simply. I'm, I'm totally agnostic, and the next, uh, the third satellite will have both wave bands. It'll have both 1064 and a 1550 system. The 1550 system will support conventional on-off key, wavelength division, multiple access, uh, as well as our uh, 10, 1064 uh, coherent homodyne BPSK system. Did I say 1550? 1550 CWDM on-off key and 1064 beyond line of sight coherent homodyne BPSK at, at two gigabits per second. The advantage of that is that with a homodyne coherent system, it's incredibly sensitive, and therefore you get high data rate with low power. So giving you an example, the laser system we've got today uses 2.2 watts of optical power to go 45,000 kilometers. And when it gets there at end of life, it's something like 30, 40 photons per bit because you've got a coherent homodyne receiver. If you had a direct detection receiver, as you would imagine as normal laser communications in the ground is done, you would need hundreds of photons per bit. So for the same optical power, you would probably be looking at one or 200 megabits per second, but then you can get higher data rates by having multiple wavelengths. So it's a trade-off to be made, and in my opinion, we intend to support both. So uh, we've submitted our 1064 coherent homodyne BPSK modulation system uh, into the uh, CCSDS standards forum, and uh, we'd be delighted to see how that progresses with other standards. And we plan to uh, locate and operate a second receiver on there for other standards if necessary. This is another example of how you put it on an airborne platform. In this case, it's a quadcopter. It's an imaginary quadcopter. You see these things in Maplin these days, but this is a slightly bigger one than that. 
uh, where you have a dedicated uh, turret on the top for beyond line of sight or air to air to another aircraft. And you could combine your imaging turret with your line of sight communications turret on the bottom. So we're starting to get towards a network in the air and space sort of mindset here. And similarly, the turret on the ground could talk up to the geostationary satellite or to a LEO as required. Um, what sort of uh, concept of use could we imagine for airborne platforms? Because it's very different to uh, low Earth orbiting satellites. So we've explored this with various customers. And one of the things that they seem to be very interested in is they're not bothered about having continuous communication. They just want to get all their data off their platform within a certain latency, a certain time delay. So I gave an example here. If we give a burst of communication for five minutes roughly every half hour, then the maximum latency is 25 minutes. The average latency is 15 minutes, and the minimum latency is zero minutes. So for a half-hour latency, the data gets to the ground within 300 milliseconds. It could be processed in first-level processing in some sort of secure cloud within 10 minutes, and then that would trigger eyes on for the image analyst to an analyze that data and confirm there's some uh, something interesting there within another 10 or 15 minutes. So within an hour, you would have actionable intelligence which you could then trigger other observations to be made. For instance, some sort of operation where you'd want to have that in real time. So this gives you a little idea as to how that would look. Alex, can you play the second movie, please? So what we did was we did some simulations of this, and then we uh, put it to customers, and then what we did was uh, refine this concept of operations with those customers. So why would you do laser communications to an airborne platform? Well, airborne platforms are even more challenged in terms of power than low Earth orbiting satellites because every, uh, every bit of fuel is keeping the craft up in the air. So this is line of sight imaging and line of sight communications back to the ground. And then we have this mass memory concept from the satellite whereby we just keep storing the data until the mass memory is nearly full. You have a pre-reserved slot allocated with your geostationary satellite, and then you can burst the communications uh, for five minutes up to that geostationary satellite. And within 300 milliseconds, it will appear back on the ground station in Central Europe, and then you can fibre it to your processing centre. So within some 300 milliseconds, you've got gigabits of data off that spacecraft or that, in this case, this airborne platform. And it, you can also do it in the forward direction to control the instrument to look left or right, to zoom in or, or whatever else. So you've got very, very high data rate backhaul. It's secure and robust. So this is showing you this concept of operation where for five, you're imaging for a period of time, you're bursting communications for five minutes, you then collect more data for 25 minutes, and then you have another burst of data. And you could do that regularly. And that sort of system, five minutes out of 30, would give you an average data rate of 300 megabits per second, which is a very healthy average data rate and a peak data rate of 1.8 gigabits per second. Then, if you had to observe an operation, you could have the actual laser giving you data in real time for half an hour initially, and when we put more lasers on the geostationary satellites, we could do it for longer periods of time and have dedicated lasers for certain uh, scenarios. So this seems to be very uh, much in uh, interest to people who need to collect data, and it's, not, it's a wide range of users. Um, why would you want to do this? So any laser link from an airborne platform is, is primarily, it's about this 10 times better power efficiency. 
the system is a near-bent pipe, so it's got a very low probability of jamming uh, because the actual laser beam is only 800 meters diameter by the time it hits the Earth. Um, it's a low probability of intercepting the opposite direction because if you're talking about 40 photons per bit, there's not very much laser light incident on that receiver from a geostationary satellite 45,000 kilometers away. Um, and because it's current Homodyne BPSK system, that's a very, very narrow filter, uh, so it's very hard to jam it. Um, in terms of endurance, if you think about your 120 watts of DC power to deliver 1.8 gigabits per second, you would need a lot of transponders and a lot of power to deliver that same data rate with an RF system. And the, and the system is a near-bent pipe as possible, so you can encrypt it end-to-end. -end. The only thing we do is we have the option to add additional transaction security encryption on a geostationary satellite if, if that is required. And here's a range of platforms, uh, airborne, unmanned, and high-altitude pseudo-satellites. And, and there's no particular thing meant by this, is that uh, they can any, any airborne platform, from our perspective, if you think about it, we're trying to lock onto a low-Earth orbiting satellite flying at 22 times the speed of sound, actually trying to lock onto an airborne platform at maybe a ground velocity of 750 miles per hour and a 250 uh, miles per hour wind shear um, or, or jet stream, it's still only roughly Mach 1. And we're used to locking onto something at Mach 22 within 60 seconds. So this looks like a stationary object. And we have to know its location within 2,000 2, microradians. As I said, that's the course pointing cone of scan. So what we do when we course point is we, we point to within 2,000 microradians. And then what we do is we do a spiral scan to find the counter terminal. And then once we've locked onto that, the other one spiral scans in the opposite direction and they handshake for a little period of time. And within 60 seconds, they lock onto each other. So that 2,000 microradians, what does that translate to in terms of the location of this aircraft? Well, 2,000 microradians projected from geostationary to ground is something like a diameter of 100 kilometers. So it's like a county. We need to know where you are for a very large county or a large region. Um, and we need to know that for a short period of time to lock on to you. And then we'll, once locked on, you can move that aircraft around as much as you want. We'll stay locked on to you. Because it's, a lot, it's moving a lot slower than a low-Earth orbiting satellite would do. These are examples. So this is uh, a demonstrator has been put together between General Atomics and TSAT Spacecom, who are our laser manufacturer. And what they're doing is they're moving the turret from the front, uh, underneath the front of uh, this aircraft, towards what they call chin mount. And that turret can it's a standard uh, L3 turret, uh, and it can either point down to do its standard imaging or an extra aperture can point up towards a geostationary spacecraft. And a number of concepts of operation have been uh, uh, discussed. For, for This is a typically an aircraft that sits above the clouds, but if it wants to sit below the clouds and do sensor data uh, collection, I optically say, once it's done its data collection, it can climb above the clouds if necessary and do its laser link back to the geostationary or between aircraft, if need be. So again, this is the coverage for airborne platforms, assuming something like a 10-degree elevation angle. Why do we choose 10-degree elevation angles? If you remember at the very beginning, we had these two low-Earth orbiting satellites with laser links at 5.6 gigabits per second. They were also communicating to an optical ground station. What we found was when the elevation angle is, is more than 20 degrees, 
firing through the atmosphere, we've got good communications all the way over to 20 degrees on the other side, and that's at ground level. So if you fly this at 10,000 feet, the air is much thinner, the moisture and the dust in the atmosphere, which was causing the problem below 20 degrees, and the turbulence, uh, the air is so much less dense, and, uh, and, and the system will work, we believe, from about 10 degree elevation angle all the way across to the other side. So this is the coverage of EDRSA uh, for a 10 degree elevation angle, and this is again the coverage of EDRSC, our second satellite with a 10 degree elevation angle. So it's quite a lot of very useful area of the Earth for sensor data collection. This is the range of platforms, just an example of a range of platforms. You've got manned platforms. It's not to be underestimated. Manned platforms today have got, uh, they're bristling with sensors and uh, data collection and could be retrofit very quickly a, a laser communication terminal onto them. And they could then be connected to this ultra-wideband communications. And they could be for civil, uh, dual use and military applications. All the unmanned platforms, all the usual suspects, hails and males, as well as civil UAVs could be used here. And there's lots of UAV applications from precision agriculture to precision forestry to border security that could, uh, could, uh, could, be use, uh, could use a laser link either between aircraft or aircraft to ground or aircraft to space to ground beyond line of sight. But increasing the future might be these new breed of things. We call them high-altitude pseudo-satellites. Uh, I, I call them the flying solar panels. Basically, uh, the one on the right is the Zephyr. Uh, was originally done by Kinetic, is now owned by Airbus Defence and Space. This is a Zephyr 7. Um, it holds the world record for a sustained flight of 28 days, continuous. Uh, it flies at 100,000 feet during the daytime. Currently, it drops uh, down quite a bit in the nighttime, but the next generation Zephyr Sorry, that's a Zephyr 8. It drops down at night time a bit. Zephyr, uh, Zephyr 8, the next one, will stay up much closer to the 100,000 feet at night time, and then we're going to roll out Generation and ge 1 and Generation 2 soon. This is a similar thing was done by DLR um, a couple of years ago, but there's lots of these things around uh, almost on a daily basis. They're popping up. And these things will be like high-altitude uh, planes can be even used to, uh, you've seen things in the press, they could be used with a mobile phone base station to provide connectivity to remote locations. They can be used for all sorts of different things. Uh, and at the end of the day, they still need a backhaul connection beyond line of sight. And particularly if your power and space are mass limited, laser communications is very important, even more important to these platforms. I'll give you an example today, Zephyr 7. It's the wingspan is the length of two tennis courts. Uh, it weighs, I think it's measured in tens of kilograms, and it has a payload capability of less than five kilograms. Less than five kilograms. That's two of my laptops, or two or three of those laptops. So you're not going to get much of a payload on there initially, but within uh, very soon, Zephyr 8 will have a higher payload capability, and, and when we get to Gen 1, you'll be able to get a really serious payload on there. Uh, these things could have mobile phone base stations, they could have... Uh, imaging instruments, they could do all sorts of interesting things. Um, they could be relay nodes. So I'm not going to go through the pros and cons of what laser communications can do to an airborne platform. It's in the slides afterwards. Right, I'm more or less getting towards the back end of the presentation. I'm sorry if this has been a repetition for those that have seen me or know me of several presentations. What I've done is put together what I think is the near future for what we've been doing recently. 
uh, from several things I've presented at recent conferences. And now we get into scary territory. So uh, and this comes with complete disclaimer, nothing to do with Airbus Defence and Space. In fact, if, if I look at some of these slides, I'm not sure I even put them together. So this is Martin's crystal ball. It's Martin's view as of today. He's, I, I give myself the complete right to deny this tomorrow and even change my mind tomorrow. But you know the world is a rapidly changing place. For me, the future is all about networks and services. So I'm, I'm applying Metcalfe's law here. So what we're doing is we're saying today there's probably five or six lasers up in space. There's two Terrasar-X N-Fire, there's Sentinel-1A, there's AlphaSat, there will be very soon EDRSA, and then there'll be three or four more Sentinels in the near future. So a handful of satellites. So N squared of eight is 64, so it's getting to be useful. But I would like to get some low Earth orbiting satellites from SSTL and other small satellite manufacturers up within two or three years on tech demo sats. And I can put airborne platforms up within six months. You know, these things are being developed today and will be demonstrated probably within six months a year. And they will start to start use these systems and start to demonstrate the capabilities. So what does the future look like? For me, this is one example of the future. I'm going to put a third satellite probably out to the east or to the west. And you know that only two satellites are needed for complete global coverage of low Earth orbiting satellites because of this ability to look over the poles and rather than the side of the Earth. So um, having two or three more would be very interesting. You could imagine a, a sensing satellite somewhere over Japan. It laser links up to a satellite at 60, 70 degrees east. It then has a GeoGeo laser link to uh, EDRS CRA in Central Europe and then can download the data in KA band into Central Europe within three or 400 milliseconds. You could get data from the other side of the Earth into Europe for processing in the secure cloud. You can imagine all sorts of scenarios. You can imagine uh, low Earth orbiting satellites talking to airborne platforms, airborne platforms talking to other airborne platforms. It's going to be the big network in space. And, and here's our KA inter-satellite link on the International Space Station. That's a hell of a big space station, <laughs> just to make it obvious what's going on here. So uh, that's what the future looks like. And, and could be within five years, you could imagine a third node up in space. What I've done is to think about, take one example scenario just to show how this network of networks, this globally connected communications could be of real use for a, 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 water, a water limited country like the United Kingdom. We're surrounded by water. We need to do maritime patrol for various reasons we won't go into. But it could be fisheries, could be smuggling, could be border security, any number of reasons. Imagine a ship out here, or a laser terminal on a ship, or a laser terminal on the ground. We could, we could make laser communications via this to geostationary and back into Central Europe, beyond line of sight. That's one possibility. But I come from Manchester. And it rains 200 days a year in Manchester, and it's cloudy for 364 days a year. That's why I moved down south. And for me, laser communications from ground through clouds to geostationary is not possible today. It's not going to be possible in the near future. Um, not if you want to have a low-power laser. Uh, my American colleagues have an interesting solution to this. They, their idea is to 
create a hole in the cloud and then fire a comms laser through it. No, that's not something we want to talk about or even consider in the near future. So there are parts of the world, though, that, where that scenario could be very interesting. Imagine if you're doing um, bathymetry and uh, sensing in the Arctic region, because only 10% of the Arctic uh, region is, has actually got accurate depth data. And if you want to start putting things through the Arctic region in, in the summer, uh, either by the northern sea route or the northwest passage, you need accurate bathymetry data. You need accurate exploration data for oil and gas and other things. And in order to get that data back into Europe for processing, you could imagine having a laser terminal on, on the deck of a ship doing that data relay back into Central Europe. And if anybody's looked at the cloud coverage data, there are parts of the world where for six months of the year there are no clouds, for instance, in the Middle East in the summer, and if any of you have been skiing at the top of a mountain on a nice cold day, the actual freezing cold freezes all the moisture out of the air. So you can have a very good laser comms signal, possibly from remote Arctic and Antarctic locations for periods of the winter where you don't have any clouds. And there are parts of, parts of the world where the Arctic, for instance, the Antarctic Peninsula, where there are large periods of time where there are no clouds at all. So you could use this for bursted communications at that time. But getting back onto the more realistic, here's a maritime patrol aircraft. It's flying around. It flies around typically for six or eight hours. And today it, it has the ability to communicate down to a ship um, pretty well with dial tone. Could be Link 16 tactical comms in, measured in tens of kilobits. Um, I heard a very interesting story the other day, and I'm not going to say which nation does this, but they fly their maritime patrol aircraft. And an aircraft like this would generate four terabytes of data in an eight-hour mission. Flying over the sea, loads of ships all pinging up. They, they, they collect this data. They then compare their AIS signals with the radar signals and try and work out. It's like looking for a needle in a haystack, which is the drug smuggler, which is the illegal uh, uh, ship amongst the, all the others. So it's a real needle in a haystack. So they collect masses and masses of data, four terabytes in eight hours. And their way of transferring this information to the frigate below to go and intercept this nefarious ship uh, is they, they burn a load of DVDs, they wrap it in packaging tape, they connect it to a float, and they throw it out of the back of the aircraft. And then the, the ship goes out with a rib and collects it. Now, I'm not going to say which nation does that, but I think you can imagine that that is happening today because tactical data links run at tens of kilobits per second. Now, you could imagine having a laser link like the one we had in the tornado, uh, making laser links to ground below the clouds at gigabits per second in the near future. And you could also do a very nice RF link. Uh, we, we know today, from experience we have, you can either do it in L-band at tens of megabits, and you could imagine KU 50 megabits or, or, or so, depending on the modulation scheme. But at the end... Oh, pressed the wrong button there. At the end of the day, you always have to com control these and... and Let's go back one. You always have to get, send command and control instructions from back in base as to where to go next, which bit of intelligence, where's the best place to look for the next uh, people that, that we're looking for. So you can imagine using conventional RF SATCOM for the very near future uh, to do a broadband link. And if it's L-band, you, you're expecting it to be hundreds of, megabit, hundreds of uh, kilobits per second. And if it's uh, X or KU-band, you can do tens of megabits per second. Uh, and in, in KA, either civil or military band, you can expect to get something like 50 megabits per second. And I would call that a delta ISR communication. In other words, you'd like to 
transmit this whole common operating picture, these four terabytes, back to base to do analysis in the cloud and then send some instructions back here as to where to go next. But this ISR picture you've generated inside the aircraft in, and stored in the three racks of equipment with all these guys sitting in there looking at the, looking at the data because you can't, you have to look in it here because that's where the four terabytes is, but ideally you'd like to have it back here and just have people sitting at their desk, desk analyzing it in slow time. You can't do that because these data links are not going to not going to transmit very much very quickly. So you send just a very small amount of the uh, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance data back and send instructions out. So this is the next aircraft coming out. What's happened to my man? Yeah, here's the next aircraft coming out to relieve it after eight hours. The two aircraft would ideally like to exchange data when they come close to each other. And why would they want to do that? The reason is very simple, because the new aircraft coming on station today spends the first hour and a half recharacterizing that space, because the four terabytes is there, but it's not there. So it's got to start from scratch. It's got to completely recharacterize the area underneath. So an hour and a half of a, of a six or eight hour mission is wasted recharacterizing data. So we'd like to have either RF or laser links between these two aircraft to transfer that common operating picture so the new aircraft coming on station could be more efficient in its, in its data collection and get on with the job immediately rather than just start from scratch again. And then um, that aircraft is coming on station and doing its new job with the new aircraft and the, the other aircraft on the way home can the first thing it does, the aircraft coming off station, it wants to get home as quick as possible. This could be anything between half an hour and three hours. It will climb to 25,000 feet and fly in the thin air of 25,000 feet as quick as possible. Uh, and, of course, in most cases, that's above the clouds. And you could imagine a 10-minute data link via a laser relay satellite like EDRS. And in that 10-minute data link at 1.8 gigabits per second, applying a, a lossless compression of 8 to 1, you would transfer one of the four terabytes that you have gathered on this, the most important one of the four terabytes, back to base and save some three hours of time to get that back to base when they land. And then they wouldn't have to take the DVDs off the ramp and fed the, FedEx them into wherever they're going to process it. So there's a big operational benefit of being able to do that 10-minute that link on the way home. Huge operational benefit. So what does the future, and then this aircraft, as it goes home, it doesn't have to always use a laser link. It can use conventional SATCOM for further instructions, etc. Here's the future coming over the horizon at 10,000 feet. Here's the pseudo satellites. Initially, they'll have a very small KA band or X band transmitter on them up to conventional RF SATCOM satellites, and in the future, hopefully, eventually lasers. So you can imagine all of these aircraft, air to air, air to ground, uh, air to space, that could be a LEO or a GEO, this is the network of the future. It's a useful way of doing things, and there's lots of different applications where this will be uh, used in the foreseeable future. So I'm going to more or less stop. I'm just going to summarize what's happened, in my opinion. Free Space Optical Communications Day is today. It has started as of last November when we proved the LEO GEO link. We have the ability to task a satellite or an airborne platform beyond line of sight very quickly, so you take the right pictures. In other words, you get the right images. You have the fact that you can deliver them with a low latency, 300 or 400 milliseconds back into Europe. So that's the right data in the right time. 
We've got a gigabit transmission which gives you the right quantities and uh, the fact that you're delivering into Central Europe and can have a, a, a six-meter dish. So typically our ADRS system today, it can do 1.8 gigabits uh, user data rate into a 5.8-meter dish. And if you've been to Harwell, has anybody been to Harwell here? On the main entrance, the main roundabout, that is our ADRS dish there. It's a rather interesting location. We, getting a, a dish at Harwell was a headache and a, and a half. So originally we wanted to have it right next door to the Space Apps Catapult Center, you know, on the front lawn in front. That was a lovely idea until the guys opposite decided they were going to put a three-story building there, which isn't built yet. yet. Uh, so we ended up with 11 or 12 locations because there's so many stakeholders on that site. And a colleague of mine who no longer works for the company, Steve Jones, he decided one day, right, we're going to get all the stakeholders, we get a big map of the site, and we kept pointing at bits of the, of the site, no, we can't do it for that reason, no, we can't do it for that reason. And I just pointed at the roundabout and said, what about there? Deadly silence. And up to that point, they wanted to hide the dish. They actually wanted me to camouflage this big six-meter dish. Well, we put it on the roundabout, we now want to floodlight it and actually want a logo on it. So this is the world we live in. It's very, very interesting. Sometimes a, 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 dis a disadvantage can become an advantage. So what have we seen in the last couple of years? We've seen some major revolutions in the space and telecommunications industry, particularly in airborne and space. Um, Skybox Imaging did something very interesting. They took a CubeSat and said, how big can you make a CubeSat before it more or less falls over? And it's about small fridge size. They then put a very interesting instrument on it, on, on it to take pictures around about one meter panchromatic, and, and they also put a video sensor on there at, at a number of frames per second. I'm not sure 25 frames per second is correct. But the long and the short of it was they proved that you could do imaging, quite good resolution, and video very quickly for very, very small amounts of money, and, and you know that Google bought them and invested in them. The other big revolution that came along uh, is, the, is, the, is the launcher story. I'm not even going to get into the launcher story today. We could talk for hours on the launcher story, and I'm, I'm not instructed to do that because it's not my field of interest. All I'm interested in is cheap launch. I don't care who does it. Uh, I'd like my own company to do it, but I'll take a launch from anybody. And then on top of that, we've had our own revolutions in the last five years. SSTL has really reinvented the small, low-cost satellite. Those SSTL 300S1s, they look like the 300s I showed you before, but they're a little bit longer. They can do one-meter resolution. Three of those can be launched and operated, uh, initially tested, for the cost of one large satellite of the old variety. So the, world, the cost is coming down, and this is the possibility of today, and we've proven LEO geolinks. So I'm going to stop there and say that the, the near-real-time LEO constellation is today, but I'm going to go beyond that and say the networks of optical communications in air, space, and somewhere in between, which is what these pseudo-satellites do, their day is coming, if not already here now. What are we going to do next with it? And at this point... I'm going to acknowledge that all new technologies are risky. It's easy to say the answer is an SME. SMEs do some very interesting innovations, but they don't actually necessarily have massive turnover and can deliver a long-term solution. So you need innovations with small companies. You need big companies to help to put those things together. You also need your national bodies and your agencies and your funding bodies, such as the UK Space Agency or the Technology Strategy Board. They call themselves Innovate UK now, supporting this, and they've been very supportive. And then you need almost regional uh, agencies like ESA and NASA to, to pull this all together to get the risky stuff off the ground. And it's all about teamwork. 
and I uh, completely acknowledge the support of DLR and the European Space Agency. We would not be where we are if it wasn't for their support to do this. So I'm going to stop now. My business card is there. There's lots of people who have contributed to this presentation. I can't name them all. I'm going to stop and take some questions. But I will say one thing. I'm not sure I've got the answers. So I'll hand you over. From across the globe, from the center of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading. Visit www.aerosociety.com to download more from this series and other multimedia content from the Royal Aeronautical Society. If you enjoyed this content, please consider showing your support for the Society. Share a link to this presentation by email or on your favorite social networks. If you have an interest in aerospace, consider the professional and personal benefits of membership. Visit www.aerosociety.com. This content is provided subject to our website and digital media terms of use. Please visit www.aerosociety.com for more information.